good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's Christmas time. It's exciting. We're in a series called King Jesus. And, uh, you know, a couple things, too, with Christmas time. Robin mentioned them already, but just, excuse me, some services that we have coming up I'd invite you to. Uh, two weeks from tonight, Blue Christmas. For anyone who's experienced loss or loneliness, uh, the holidays are, are really tough for so many people. And uh, it, it'll be a good night uh, just for you to come and uh, to know it's okay to not be okay. And uh, Pastor Dave is going to be leading that for us this, this year. Uh, but it's two weeks from tonight, Sunday, December 20th at 6 p.m. And I don't think in 2020 there's one of us who hasn't experienced loss to some degree or another. And so it could be a powerful night. And it'll be broadcast live as well on Facebook and archived there uh, that night. And then, of course, Christmas Eve on December 24th, December 24th and uh, 6 p.m., two weeks from Thursday already. Can you believe that? That's two weeks from Thursday. Well, it is Christmas time. I mentioned we're in a series called uh, King Jesus, and that's what we're looking at this year at Christmas. We're looking at the kingly nature of Jesus Christ. King Jesus. Pastor Dave set us up well last Sunday. Uh, I, was, I was, uh, had some time off, and so it was good to be away. It's good to be back. But uh, did a great job just leading us to recognize Jesus is the king. We're to seek the king, to worship the king, to honor the king. It's incredible to consider that it, at Christmas, that Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, put on flesh and was born to live among us, to come dwell with us. And we're told uh, that he's seated on his throne with his feet up, according to scripture. In other words, he's in total control. The earth is his footstool and he is just not worried about anything, especially 2020. He's just not concerned. He's totally in control and totally in charge. And that is great, great news. And he will be in charge as we move forward into 2021 and whatever uh, waits for us there. And when he returns, when he comes back and sets up shop, when he returns in glory and in power, there's no election, no ads on TV, no recounts. It's just he sets up shop and rules and reigns in power and in perfection, our perfect, benevolent king. Well, uh, the role of king is one of three offices that Jesus fulfills, three roles the way that he fulfills perfectly. And maybe you've heard of them. If you're, if you're a new Christian or you're new to this whole church thing, you may not have heard of this. This may be brand new to you. If you've been around a long time, you maybe have heard some of these things. But I think for us to understand Jesus as king, it's good to just briefly touch on these three offices, these roles that, that he uniquely fulfills. And it's prophet, priest, and king. Have you heard of those before? Let me try to give you just a really basic, broad brush definition of them, okay? So, so prophet, and by the way, these, these offices aren't brand new with Jesus' arrival. Uh, these existed, I, I believe, uh, even as far back as in the garden, but, but certainly among God's people, Israel. And, and they're, they're how God relates to his people and how he interacts with us through people fulfilling these roles and these offices. And so the prophet, on your, on your uh, notes, you might just draw a down arrow under prophet. 
And consider that the prophet speaks God's words to people. So it's God to people through the prophet. That's the role of a prophet. And, and really, these roles still exist. I mean, in a certain sense, uh, we're all called to speak with a prophetic voice for God into our culture. And even as I, I teach uh, God's word, I get that great privilege. I get to fulfill, the, to a much lesser degree than Jesus, that role of prophet, of proclaiming God's word, right? And then priest. So if prophet is uh, an arrow down, God to people, priest, just flip it on its head, draw an arrow up. Th this is... Uh, uh, the, the priest would speak to God for or on behalf of people. <clears throat> That's simplifying it a little bit, but they would offer sacrifices and prayers and praises to God on behalf of people. They would intercede for people in their behalf. And uh, if you wanted a direct line to God, you went to the priest and he would pray for you. He'd pray over you. He'd intercede for you. Well, again, this is a role that's still in effect for all of us, right? Peter tells us that we're a priesthood of believers. We all get to speak to God. We all get to pray to him. We all get to intercede for others and go to him. And then, of course, this third role of king, you might draw a crown over king and maybe uh, the earth underneath it or a, or a star or something, that he's the king and ruler over everything, the king rules, that office rules as God's representative. <clears throat> and so even Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God creates everything and he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the earth. They're to rule as God's representative, the way that he would want them to rule on the earth. Now, over time, uh, God raises up people and, and has them fulfill these roles. And all of us are called to some degree or another uh, to, to exercise these roles, I believe. Uh, but we see it perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And, and this idea of a king. Uh, well, let's just look at the way Jesus fulfills these things. As prophet, he reveals God to us. He speaks for God to us. Only unlike the prophets of the Old Testament, you know, that would have something revealed to them that they would speak, Jesus himself as God is the actual source of revelation. He's God himself speaking to us. He's the, he's the prophet par excellence. He's the perfect one. And then as priest, Jesus, of course, he intercedes for us. He sacrificed himself for us. And he continually brings us near to God. He continually prays for us as the perfect, our perfect high priest who can sympathize with us and knows us and loves us. And then as king, man, Jesus is the perfect, benevolent king. He's the king of the universe. We, we like to say it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And he rules over the church. He rules over the universe. And he is in complete control. And none of this is, is new with Jesus' arrival in the flesh. I mean, Jesus existed eternally. He put on flesh at Christmas and came to live among us. And, but these offices, none of this is new. In fact, God promised a king to us, to his people. And I, I, I want to show you that promise dates all the way back to Genesis. So we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 3. This morning, just briefly, we're going to be uh, all over the place in scripture actually today. Uh, but once you turn there, and as you do, let me pray, and then uh, we're going to look at, at, at this king that God has promised us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Of course, he is the king you promised. He's the perfect, benevolent, righteous king, as we'll see this morning. 
And he loves us, he befriends us, he intercedes for us, cares for us, and is in complete control. Holy Spirit, would you teach us this morning from your word that we uh, might, might seek the king this morning together to worship him, to honor him, to love him, to be known by him. And uh, Holy Spirit, would you work in me even as I teach your word, teach me, and that Jesus might be made much of. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, Genesis, of course, is the first book of the Bible. So if you've got your Bible, just open up to the very beginning. And those first two chapters of Genesis cover God creating everything. He, just how he created everything, including humanity. And one of the things he does is he creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in a garden. And in this garden, he tells them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he gives them one don't rule. Do you know what it was? The one don't was don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, first off, you got to get this in your head. This garden isn't like your grandma's garden, you know, with her radishes and rhubarb in the backyard. This is like a garden, like think like National Park. Think like Yellowstone, like the boundaries of of Eden as they're laid out in scripture. This is a a huge area. And uh, God gave them one rule. There's only one tree in that whole area they couldn't eat from. But what do they do? Well, they're tempted by the enemy, by Satan, the serpent. And he comes to Eve and he tempts her and says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? And she says, no, we just can't eat from this one. And uh, he goes, oh, that's not true. And she said, if we eat from it, we'll die. That's what God said. And, And Satan, he's trying to reverse everything. He says, no, God surely didn't say that you would die. Come on, he knows if you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll be like him. Well, uh, God had already made them like him. So that's a reverse of everything he had said. That's a lie. And she eats of it. And before we blame Eve, what she do right after she takes a bite, she turns to her husband, Adam, who is evidently standing right there and he takes a bite. So he's just as much to blame. And uh, they've sinned. And then after they sinned, they disobeyed this one rule. See, God's rules weren't restrictive. They were actually very empowering of them. They only had one thing that they were not to do. They had total freedom. But they sinned and now... In their sin for the first time, imagine this, they felt shame. I can't imagine life without feeling shame, can you? For the first time, they felt guilt. For the first time, they felt separation from God and God comes looking for them, where are you? And finds out what's happened and the serpent tempted them. And then God goes and he starts with the serpent and starts with Satan and starts addressing him. And in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, I believe we see God actually promise a king. This is the first evidence of the gospel, the first uh, proclamation, I should say, of the gospel in all of scripture. Check this out, Genesis 3.15. By the way, this is before he's dealt with Adam and Eve after their sin. He he says this, he goes uh, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what's happening here is that uh, this is is the gospel message. This is hope. This is a promise because what what God is saying to the serpent is that uh, there's coming someone from this woman, an offspring of hers, who's going to come and he's going to crush your head for what you've done. He's going to crush your head for your rebellion. He's going to fix everything that just got messed up. And you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to nip at him. You're going to wound him, but he's going to crush your head, man. 
Now tell me, what's worse, stubbing your toe or a head wound? Head wound every time, right? And, and so that's what happens. And ultimately, this is a promise of Jesus. The offspring of the woman is going to be Jesus Christ, the one born at Christmas. And he, in his work, in living his perfect life, his perfect life of righteousness, and then his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then at the end, we're going to see he crushes the enemy. This is Jesus being promised. In fact, uh, the entire storyline of the Bible is tracing how is, is that promise going to be fulfilled. It's tracing this promise from Genesis 3.15. Who's the offspring of the woman going to be? Who's it going to be? And we follow all the way through. And then just to show it to you, you get to the end of the book. Go to Revelation chapter 19 with me. And in Revelation chapter 19, we start to see this be fulfilled. Look at verse 11. John says this. He goes, when I saw heaven opened... Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. Now, uh, that's, that's part of the role of a king uh, to, 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 to judge in righteousness and to make war and to protect this kingdom and to advance his kingdom. Uh, we're going to see here, he's speaking of a king that's riding in on this horse. And in case you wondered, it's, it's Jesus, right? Look at verse, the next verse here. His eyes, I never saw this flannel graph growing up. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. This is the king. This is the king riding in on the horse to save the day. You ever, you ever watch Lord of the Rings and at the end you see Gandalf riding down the mountain on the white horse? Well, that, that imagery, when Tolkien write, wrote that, he's, he's borrowing from imagery of the Bible of Jesus' return. And, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's holy. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We're going to see where that blood comes from here in a moment. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, that, that's a favorite title of Jesus that John uses in John 1 and then here in Revelation. By, by speaking of Jesus as the word of God, he's, uh, you, you might think of it as he's the fulfillment of God's promise. He's God's very word to us. He's his promise to us. That this is Jesus. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. In other words, uh, his rule will never be upended. He's always going to be in control. There's never going to be a coup that's going to overtake Jesus' kingdom. And, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That blood on his robe is from treading the winepress, from, from meeting out God's wrath. That's... This is Jesus. This is the one promised in Genesis 3.15. This is the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the enemy. He's going to fix what's been messed up. And what's amazing is this is gospel. This is good news because it's, it's promised to us before he even deals with Adam and Eve and their sin. Genesis 3.15. And now look at this. 
Uh, I'm going to keep reading from Genesis, uh, or from, excuse me, from Revelation 19. You won't see this on the screen, but it says, then I saw, John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. You're like, wow, this is just a great Christmas sermon, Josh. <laughs> right? But, but that's what's that's happened. This king is coming in righteousness and he's going to mete out God's wrath on his enemies. And then you get towards the end of this and in verse 20, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. In other words, from Jesus' mouth. I think this is imagery John's using for with, you, ever, you remember the old Martin Luther hymn? Uh, Mighty fortress is our God. One little word will fell him. <laughs> we tremble not for, for the enemy. Because with just a word, with the breath, with, with a sword from his mouth, I mean, that battle, everybody's riding in to, to conquer, to save the day. By the way, uh, Ladies, if you ever grew up uh, as a little girl just longing for a prince, or a prince, excuse me, to come rescue on a right white horse, you're imaging God. That, that's, that's right there in Revelation. Uh, guys, if you ever grew up or you have a, a little boy or a grandson who every stick he finds in the yard is a sword that he wants to swing and go into battle, he's imaging Jesus. <laughs> it's right here. But he comes in and with the sword from his mouth, in other words, that battle is going to be like so quick, in a sense, just with the breath of his mouth, just, and it's done. Just one word, the sword that comes from his mouth. This is the king that's born at Christmas. And all the birds then were gorged with their flesh. Well, just again, to show you, this is the promise fulfilled from back in Genesis 3.15, because the whole Bible is tracing how that promise is going to be fulfilled. Look at chapter 20. Then John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that, that ancient serpent, back from Genesis 3, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. That, that's the enemy. His head's going to get crushed. Do you remember that? That's what was promised. We're watching it happen here. And when the thousand years are ended, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Hell is created. Actually, listen, Satan doesn't rule in hell. He's tormented in hell. It was created for his destruction, for the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The one who rules and reigns over hell is the offspring of the woman. It's King Jesus. Just as he rules in heaven, he, he rules over all. And he is in full and total control. Now, this idea of a king, God promised a king back in Genesis 3.15, and I've mentioned it already, but the whole storyline of Scripture traces that promise. How's God going to fulfill this promise and fix what we've messed up? Because in our sin, oh man, we, we are so, uh, so messed up and so without hope. That's why Christmas is such good news because that King has come. And, and so uh, what happens is, uh, let's just trace the story a little bit. 
After Genesis 3.15, sin enters the world and Adam and Eve have a couple sons. And uh, if you thought your family was messed up, well, one of their sons kills the other one. And so dysfunction right from the beginning and they have more children and they begin to be fruitful. They multiply, uh, they fill the earth and then uh, things go on and people become more and more wicked. So uh, God decides that he's gonna uh, wipe everything out and start over. And so he shows grace to Noah and then Noah walks with God and then God saves Noah and his family in the ark, right? With the big flood. And after the flood, everything's wiped out. Noah and his family come off and he gives them the same command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And uh, they begin to do that, but uh, they don't fill the earth. They gather together and they decide to build this big tower uh, to themselves and to honor themselves. And at the Tower of Babel, God says, okay, you're not fulfilling the earth, so I'm gonna make you fill the earth. And uh, he, he confuses their language at the Tower of Babel and everybody spreads out, fulfilling what God had commanded them to do. And, but again, this, where's this one that's gonna fix everything? When's he coming? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And God makes some promises to Abram that, that from him, actually kings would come from him and Sarah. It's in the text in Genesis. Kings will come from you. And of course, this promise then comes through Abraham and his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And through one of them, Judah is the one through whom this promise is gonna come. The offspring of the woman, Jesus, is gonna come through the line of Judah. And through one of Jacob's other sons, Joseph, they end up in Egypt for 400 years and they end up in slavery. And then God raises up Moses and Moses leads them out of slavery, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, the 10, pl 10 plagues, right? And parts the Red Sea and they escape. And now they're on their way to the land that God promised Abram where, where he was going to set up shop for his kingdom, for his king. And they're on their way to this land that was promised them. And they make a stop at Mount Sinai and God appears and he gives them rules for what it's going to be like when they enter the land, how they ought to live. And they go, they spy out the land, but then they're afraid of all these people, not realizing God would conquer all of it for them, not believing his promise. So God says, fine, all of you then are going to die in the wilderness and we're going to wait till the next generation to go in. So 40 years later now, everyone's dead, except for a handful, Joshua and Caleb and uh, in Deuteronomy, God now has to give them instructions again of how they ought to live when they get into the land, just like he had told them back at Mount Sinai, right? Because that whole generation is gone. They're dead. So he's going to reiterate it to them. Hey, here's the rules. And by the way, part of those rules are if, if you choose to obey me when you enter the land, you're choosing blessing. Like things are going to go really well for you when you obey me, God says. But if you choose to sin... You choose to disobey me, you're choosing to suffer. Choose to obey, choose blessing, choose to sin, choose to suffer. It's your choice. God gives his choice to his people. And one of the things, though, is before they go in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, they're getting ready to enter the promised land after these 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Again, we're tracing this promise. Where, where's the offspring of the woman? When's, when's he coming? When's this king coming? And uh, they're about to enter the land and Here's what God says to them. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and you'll say, I'll, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. In a sense, God is saying to his, to his people, to his children, uh, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna get into the land and when you get there, you're gonna be like, hmm, I want a king. We want a king. If, if you have kids, you know what this is like, right? 
you, you might be thinking uh, with, with your kids, someday it's gonna come where you're gonna ask me for a phone. And I'm gonna tell you, here are the stipulations for this piece of technology for you. Here's how you ought to use it in a way that honors. And if you don't, it's coming back. Choose to sin, choose to suffer, son, right? Or uh, maybe in terms of driving the car and here's, here's the stipulations of how you're gonna get access to it or else I'm gonna take it away. Or, or uh, you're, you're gonna come to me, you're gonna, you're gonna want to start dating somebody and, and pursuing somebody and, and here's the stipulations. Here's God's plan for what that looks like and how you ought to live and how you ought to pursue them. And that's kind of what God is doing here as a good father, as a good dad. He's telling his kids, listen, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna come to me and you're gonna be like, I want a king. And so then look what he says. He says in uh, the next verse, he said, uh, you may indeed, you can set a king over you. But then he lays out the stipulations for this king. What's the king supposed to be like if they choose a king? Well, first off, it's to be a king that the Lord your God will choose. So God's gonna choose the king, right? He's the one in control. And, and this king is gonna be one from among your brothers, it's one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In other words, it's going to be somebody who's, who's like you, who knows you, not somebody who's raised and lifted up and uh, superior, and some, but, but who's like you, who's like you from among you. Only then he puts some limitations on the king. When you, when you choose a king for yourselves, uh, children, he must not acquire many horses for himself. Well, this limitation, first off, this restriction, it, it put a limit on the size then of Israel's army. The prohibition, he also uh, prohibits them to return to Egypt and acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He's, he's rescued them from there. They're not to go back there, not to affiliate there again. That's, you're dead to that. That's not you anymore. But if we go back to the, the horses, uh, this is a limit on the size of their army. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, so that they don't put their trust in their military might and not in God. See a similar parallel today, don't we? With the election. And I don't know who you voted for. I don't know if your candidate won or didn't win or what your hopes and dreams or fears are for the future. But don't put your hope there. Don't trust in horses, trust in the Lord. He's the king of the universe. And in acquiring all those things and seeking all those things, the king then would learn to trust in his own military might and not in God. You see that? Well, there's some other restrictions he puts on. Verse 17, uh, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Well, here's another limitation. Why, why would God say that? Well, we know because God said, you know, marriage is one man, one woman, one lifetime. But, but part of the reason is, is that in that day, uh, when you would uh, enter into a treaty, maybe with a foreign government, one of the exchanges would be a wife. And if, if the king were to take on many wives, then he's relying on other people, not the Lord. And his heart is going to be tempted to worship other gods and not the one true God. See, God's rules, when he says, don't do something, it's, it's for your protection. He says, don't do it. That will hurt you. <laughs> God says, don't. He's saying, don't hurt yourself. And, and so uh, they can't acquire many wives, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And really, that's kind of the same reason. When you acquire all kinds of wealth uh, totally for yourself, especially if you're the king and you're with power, where's your trust going to be? 
Is it gonna be in the God who provides everything for you or is it gonna be just in your own resources? I think we can all fall into these traps on our own without having the wealth of a king. Yet living in America, we live like kings. We really do. But so God puts some limitations. He's given these stipulations. Here's what your king's gonna be like when you ask for one. This is, this is my plan. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. See, all of those limitations weren't for the harm of the king. They were for his benefit and for the benefit of the people. And so that the king's heart would, would stay close to God. And then he says, beyond that, you're, you're gonna make a copy <clears throat> of this book. Uh, so those first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, and, and you're going to write it out. You're going to make sure it's, you're going to have it checked over by the Levitical priest. Make sure it's, it's a good copy. Cause like uh, the Kings in that day, they couldn't pull their iPhone out and pull up the version app, you know, and pull up whatever translation of the Bible they wanted. If they wanted a copy for themselves, it had to be written down. There, there wasn't a, wasn't a copy machine where they could, or a publisher, they, they had to write it down and it shall be with him. It shall be with the King and he shall read it in all the days of his life. Why? That he might learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Because if he chooses to do them and obey them, then what's he going to have? Blessing. Choose to obey, choose blessing. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. And that his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers and that uh, it wouldn't be prideful that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The king would learn to fear God and to love God and to be near to God by reading his word. It's the same for us, friends. Like uh, we stay near to God by hearing from him and his word sitting under its teaching, studying it for ourselves. But uh, they end up entering the land then, right? So God gives them this stipulation for a king uh, and they enter the land and Joshua leads them in and uh, these promises are reiterated to Joshua. O obey the word, don't turn from it, left or right, obey it and things are gonna go well for you in the land, God tells him. And so Joshua goes in and they begin to conquer people and push them out. But God had told them, he said, you need to drive out everyone well, at Joshua's death, uh, towards the end of his life, before his death, I should say, he, he says, you know, hey, choose who you're gonna serve. Everything else or the Lord is for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. Joshua dies. There's really nothing uh, evil spoken of Joshua, but in the generations after him, they fail to drive everybody out and trust the Lord to do it. They've chosen to sin. What have they chosen? To suffer. And so after the time of Joshua, then a generation later, we enter this period in, in the story where we're trying to figure out when's this king coming uh, in the judges. And in the judges, what happens is God's people, they, he, they turn from him, they rebel. So God disciplines them. He sends in a king from another nation to oppress them, to, to, to conquer them as slaves. And they cry out to God for help. And so then after they cry out, God raises up a judge. Not like a judge, like in a robe with a gavel, but like a judge, like a warrior, a king, somebody who's gonna bring God's judgment on these people and uh, rule for him like a king. And then after that, then there's gonna be peace again. And, and generally there's peace until that judge dies. And after the judge dies, everybody's memory is short and they turn away from God again. And he sends an oppressor again. And they cry out to God again and he sends a judge and he rescues them and then there's peace. And sometimes there's an oppressor for a few years, sometimes for a generation, sometimes there's peace for a few years, sometimes for 80 years. And 
Each time though, this cycle keeps happening. And I believe it happens eight times in the book of Judges and it gets worse and worse. And at the end of that time, 400 years later, we read at the end of Judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king. When's the king coming? Everyone's doing what they want. Well, then we get to Samuel, who's the last judge. And Samuel, uh, the people come to him and they're like, Samuel, we need a king. Because for generations now, for centuries, all these other kings have been coming in and just kicking our butts. You know what we need? Well, they need to trust the Lord. No, we need a king, a king like everybody else. And so that's what God gives them. Only it's not uh, the king God chooses, it's the king the people chose, a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul, if you read about Saul, Saul, as the first king of Israel, he was head and shoulders of everybody else. He was more handsome than anyone else. He was stronger. He was Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. That was Saul. And Saul starts off okay, but then he goes downhill quickly and he turns his heart from the Lord. And so then God chooses his own king, a guy by the name of David. And David uh, does well as king, but even David sinned. Even David didn't get it right. And David's son, then Solomon, uh, Solomon comes to power and, and Solomon builds a temple and under Solomon's reign, there's more peace and the kingdom of Israel is bigger and more profitable and more prosperous than at any time in Israel's history. And so the first uh, half of Solomon's reign is, is really good, but then he forgets about these stipulations from Deuteronomy. And he begins uh, trusting in the might of his army, which was huge. He begins uh, going after foreign women and they turn his heart away from the Lord to other gods. And he trusts in all of his wealth, which was incredible. And so after Solomon's death, chose to sin, chose to suffer, the kingdom gets divided into two and the Northern half of the kingdom endures for a couple hundred years and they have 19 kings and every one of them is evil. And the Southern kingdom endures a little bit longer and uh, they have 19 as well, but a handful of them are good. So uh, in their goodness, God delays his judgment there, but then they're taken into exile and they're brought back and the Old Testament ends. We still don't know who the king is. Who's the one that's coming from Genesis 3.15? Well, God promised a king, and so far every king that's shown up has not done a great job. But the king God promised is a king who always does what's right. He always does what's right. That's the king God promises. He's a king unlike all the others. He always does what's right. Uh, Psalm 71, 19, your righteousness, O God, it, it reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? There's no other king like the king that, that God is sending in Jesus Christ who always does right. He's the king of righteousness. Righteousness just uh, simply stated means rightness. That's Righteousness. Every decision he makes, every action he takes, everything about him is altogether right. Jesus' life is, is without sin, perfect. In fact, there's a description of him uh, hundreds of years before his birth by the prophet Isaiah of this king of righteousness, this righteous king. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, it says, "'There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse.'" A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, Jesse was the father of David, one of those kings we mentioned. And God made a covenant with David that on his throne, his throne's gonna last forever. And this king that I promised back in Genesis 3, that king's gonna, gonna sit on your throne, David. He's gonna rule and reign. He's gonna come from you. 
so uh, from the stump of Jesse, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now listen to this description of the king that's coming, the king of righteousness. Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. In other words, this king is, is going to not only be smart and have knowledge, but he's going to apply it rightly. He's going to understand things. The spirit of counsel and of might. He's going to have power. He's going to rule and reign in power. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's going to know the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This king isn't going to be influenced by the media cycle. This king isn't going to be influenced by the words of others. He's not going to judge by what he hears, but he's going to judge by what is absolutely right. Always making a right choice. And now look at this. With righteousness, with rightness, he will judge the poor. He's a benevolent king. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Hey, this is the king we saw that fulfilled Genesis 3, right? Up in Revelation. With the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In other words, the thing that that girds him, that that holds his righteousness, his rightness, his faithfulness. Man, Israel has been waiting for thousands of years for a king like this, a king that God had promised to them. And you and I, we, we long for a king like that, don't you? I mean, I'll take this king over anybody that was on the ballot this year. We long for this perfect and right and righteous king, but the one thing though, this king is righteous and holy and without sin and perfect and I'm not, how about you? And so when I consider this king, the one who's high and lifted up and on his throne, we're gonna see that next Sunday, the king of glory. He's perfect in righteousness. He's always right. He's always faithful. How can I stand before a king like that? How can I live and not be punished in the kingdom under a king like that? I mean, I, I don't match what his kingdom would be like. I don't meet that criteria. It's a terrifying thing to come into the presence of a king like that, isn't it? To know that, that you and I, we're totally sinful And that in the presence of this perfect and righteous king, we deserve nothing but his wrath. And he would be right to mete it out because I deserve it. But here's what's incredible about this king. Is this king who God promised, who always does what's right and who's perfectly holy and just and mighty and fire in his eyes and meeting out God's judgment and his wrath for sin, he also befriends his people. Now, how many of you, you're like, I would love to have a friend who uh, I just know was powerful and in control and who loved me no matter what. That's the king that comes at Christmas. That's the king of righteousness. He's perfect. 
and right in all that he does. And the incredible thing about this king of righteousness is that he pursues you and he welcomes you as his friend. Not because of anything good about you, but because of everything good about him. It's all grace. This one who conquers and reigns, who, who, who destroys the wicked with the breath from his lips, we read in Isaiah. The one who is right and righteous and holy in every way. His heart, do you get this? His, his, now I don't know how you grew up. I don't know what you've been taught and what you've learned or what you maybe even wrongly think in your head. His heart is for you. He loves you. Like he, he loves you more than you ever dreamt and hoped to be loved. And he's the king. And in so many ways, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that he would want anything to do with someone like me. Yet that's his heart. It's toward us. In fact, in Matthew 11, we get a, a, a single glimpse into Jesus telling us and describing his heart. It's the one time Jesus describes his heart for his people. Uh, when the Bible, by the way, speaks of heart in the Old or New Testament, it's talking about the very center of who we are, the, the center animating uh, identity of a person, the most true thing. And in, in Matthew 11, uh, starting verse 20, what happens is that Jesus is pronouncing judgment on those who refuse to trust him and turn to him and what's going to happen to them. And it's, it's woe to you is what he says. But then uh, a few verses later in 25, 26 and 27, we read and following his heart for his people. Look at this in verse 27. All things, Jesus said, now he's speaking to those who've trusted him and who believe him, all things have been handed over to me by my father. That sounds like a king, doesn't it? Who's in total control, total authority. And no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So he says, come to me. Now, if, if the perfect, righteous, powerful fire in his eyes, king said, come to me, what would you do? I'd be a little afraid, wouldn't you? But notice this isn't his heart. He says, come to me, all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And here's his description of his heart. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Gentle means he's tender. He's loving. He's a benevolent king who cares deeply about you. And he's for you. And not only that, but he's lowly in heart. In other words, he's approachable. Because of his work on the cross, you don't need to be afraid to go to this king. In fact, uh, he longs for you to come to him and he delights in you coming to him with everything about you that's messed up. I mean, he's girded in faithfulness and we in our sinfulness are completely unfaithful. Yet he says, come to me. He delights in that. That's his heart for you and for me. You may be familiar with the Christmas hymn, O Come All You Faithful. Maybe more accurate is, 
Oh, come all you unfaithful. And in fact, there's a new Christmas song that came out this year. I'd like to share with you now, just as we wrap up. King, 
who was promised back in Genesis with no stipulations on Adam and Eve or you and I, but simply by God's initiative. He's come in righteousness. He's come for you. He was born for you and for me. And even while we're unfaithful, Paul tells Timothy, God remains faithful. And Jesus is always faithful, always longing for you to come to him. And, and what's amazing is that this king of righteousness, what happens is at Christmas he's born, he lives a perfect life, he dies on the cross, pays the penalty for sin in my place and in your place and anyone who would believe. And then he, he rises from the grave three days later and he ascends and he's coming again to, to take all those to be with him who would believe upon him and put their trust in what he accomplished on the cross. And what happens at the cross is this king of righteousness. He, he lowers himself and humbles himself to take on my sin and your sin. And Christmas, Martin Luther would say, is truly a gift exchange where I wrap up all of my sin and all of my unfaithfulness and all of my filth and I offer it to Jesus as a gift. And the king of righteousness is a gift back to me, wraps up all of his righteousness and all of his goodness and credits it to my account. And that's what it means to become a Christian, to become a follower of this king. Not you getting it all right, not you shaping everything up, but you simply coming to him. I would commend him to you today. God promised a king who always does right and he befriends his people. He loves you so much. Trust him. Let me pray.